back to the service if you're new. Uh, it's good to gather after Christmas. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hear whispering because of my prop here. Uh, I've been teaching middle school Sunday school this semester. The last two weeks, we were sort of done with the communicants portion. And so to get them to Sunday school, I sort of bribed them. And so if they got correct answers, they got candy. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and extend that to you this morning. No, no answers, no question and answer. If you have an outline and you take great notes, I can reward you after the service. Sean Groves is a Christian musician you might have heard of. He has a blog. He's an accomplished singer-songwriter, guitarist, as well as speaker. He, he advocates for Compassion International. He's a gifted man. And best of all, he graduated from Baylor University. One of his blog posts that I read a few years ago stuck in my mind. And I remembered it, and I looked it up. He tells the story of going to a Lifeway Christian store. I don't think we have any of those around here, but they're very popular other places. And he went to go buy a book by the author Donald Miller. But he became so disgusted that he left that store, went across the street to Barnes & Nobles, and bought the book there. Now... Why was he disgusted? They didn't have the book? No. It's too expensive? Nope. Uh, he had to pass all the Christian artwork or trinkets that people get very upset about. No, that's not it. When he actually went to buy the book at Lifeway Christian Store, and he saw that it came with a note inside of it that said, we want you to know that the authors of books marked Read with Discernment may have espoused thoughts, ideas, or concepts that could be considered inconsistent with historical evangelical theology. Now, I don't know if you've read Donald Miller. I have. Uh, I would put a lot of Christian authors ahead of him on the list of inconsistent with historical evangelical theology. And Sean Groves made that point in his blog. He says, what definition both condemns Donald Miller as a heretic, but approves the writings of Joyce Meyer and John Hagee? And then he gets a little more sarcastic. And what historical evangelical theology is communicated by paintings of cottages printed on mouse pads and t-shirts that print scripture pulled from context across an American flag or keychains or romance novels? A little, a little critical. So at the time, finding that note in the book that he wanted to buy really bugged him. But he writes in his blog that actually he came later to say, I really don't mind that. In fact, I appreciate that. Although, let's be consistent. Why don't we put a note like that in every book? or CD, 
Uh, he writes, better yet, print that advisory on a massive banner and hang it outside every store. We want you to know that everything in here might be wrong. Exercise discernment. He says, I'd like to hang one up at my concerts. I want you to know that everything I'll sing and say tonight might be wrong. Exercise discernment. And one for my church. We want you to know that everything taught and sung here today might be wrong. Exercise discernment. And of course, one for this blog. I want you to know that everything I write might be wrong. Exercise discernment. And I'm with you, Sean. Except maybe I would add a phrase in some of those warnings. Everything taught and sung here today, except when we quote Scripture directly might be wrong. Exercise discernment. Discernment has not always been the strongest suit for Christians, has it? Uh, discernment is the ability to sort out truth and error, to spot half-truths or false premises of an argument, to have perception that someone or something is not in line with biblical truth. To be discerning is difficult work. We have to think and apply biblical guidelines and have an overarching, consistent worldview that we learn from reading the whole of the Scriptures. We often would rather just have a list of rules, right? Than just be told how to act and think, but life is so much more complicated than that, isn't it? Christians who have godly filters and can assess truth and error while accepting Christian freedom in gray areas in living are on their way towards loving God with their whole mind. In today's passage, Jesus talks to two groups of people. First to unbelievers, then to believers. And he rebukes them both for their lack of understanding, exhorting them to develop their skills of discernment. So let's read in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, 
O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, open our minds in the midst of this season of celebration, rest, family time. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce claims that Matthew 16 is the central or critical chapter in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's the high point in Jesus' teaching and the disciples' growth in spiritual understanding. As Jesus alluded to, they've just experienced some amazing miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Now Jesus will be further shaping his disciples and their understanding. But at the same time, there's increasing tension and opposition from the religious leaders. Think of the wise men in the Christmas story who saw a star in the heavens and followed it all the way to worship Him, to worship Jesus. Well, now we have religious leaders asking for a sign from heaven, but with no intention of following it or worshiping Jesus. In fact, their question, their demand, shows that they were leaders who had terrible discernment. Leaders who had terrible discernment Verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Apparently, we still have the saying around in a little different form from verses 2 and 3. It goes like this, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailor take warning. And Jesus is saying Congratulations, you understand some of the physical phenomenon around you. In fact, you'd make excellent weathermen, but you stink as theologians. You're asking for a sign, but you've missed all these great signs that have been put before you. As David Platt puts it, God had broken into the world coming as a man to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, 
quiet storms and bring salvation. Christ's entire earthly ministry was evidence of the victory of God over sin, suffering, the devil, and demons. And those who saw Jesus got a foretaste of a kingdom that will never be destroyed. All of this was being done right before their eyes, and the Pharisees and Sadducees were missing it. Instead, they came to Jesus with demands. Sorry to quote two commentators in a row, but Ligon Duncan has a great quote about this. This is about testing the Lord. This is precisely the kind of thing talked about in Deuteronomy when it says, do not put the Lord to the test. This is not a friendly test. This is a test to make Jesus look bad. Their desire is to embarrass him, to shame him, and hopefully to disprove him in front of the multitudes. They're not asking for their own spiritual welfare. They are there asking this to try and make sure that the crowds do not follow Jesus anymore. People do that all the time today, don't they? It's the attitude that sometimes voiced, sometimes not, but it's, I'll believe in you, God, if you just blank. Fill in the blank. If you just give me my health back. If you just keep one of my loved ones alive. If you give me the promotion I want. If you get me the spouse I desire. Or, sometimes it's the reverse. I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank, doesn't protect every little child, allows evil people in the world, doesn't reward good people, doesn't stop natural disasters, whatever it is. I hear it. People say, I'm not going to believe in God if He doesn't meet my conditions. But the bottom line is that God has revealed Himself how He's chosen to reveal Himself. And He has acted as He's chosen to act. Now, does that mean we don't ever petition Him in prayer on our behalf? Absolutely not. I'll be petitioning Him for the Steelers to be the Browns today. No, that's a different... No, we petition the Lord to act on our behalf, but we've got to check ourselves to be content with His answers and not demand that He conform to our agenda. Thanksgiving is a sweet time for the believer because we can think over our lives And remember all the good things that have come from his hand. Life, health, family, church family, jobs, friendships, sound minds, material blessings, and hundreds of other more specific things. Plus, we have the scriptural record of all the great ways that God has worked. And we are exposed as blind, selfish ingrates for throwing all that aside and demanding things from God, saying, I'm not going to believe in God because he didn't do 
this one thing for me. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Francis Schaeffer was a pastor, author, apologist, speaker, many different things, who started a ministry community in Switzerland called Labrie in the 1960s and 70s. I'm sure many of you have heard of him or read his books. Essentially, Francis and his wife Edith opened their home to anyone who wanted to come and stay with them and split their time between studying and working around the house community. Uh, Francis would lecture, but more often he would just sit and answer questions and have wonderful discussions, often around meals. But he had a saying, honest answers to honest questions, that I think he got from Jesus in passages like this. He would answer any question as honestly he could if he felt that it was asked in a sincere way. But he didn't feel constrained to answer manipulative questions. And nor should we. Because Jesus didn't in this passage. And if you've read the book of Job, God does not feel constrained in the slightest to answer every one of our questions. So there's a difference between someone looking to get their doubts and questions settled. Again, honest questions. And someone who's just looking to be confirmed in their disbelief. The Pharisees, Sadducees, have brought anything but an honest question. So Jesus gives it very little response and walks away. Now, in addition to getting insight in how to treat others' questions and our approach to God, we also learn here to exercise discernment in who we listen to. Verses 5 and 6. Exercise discernment in who we listen to. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the leaven. Beware of false teaching and false doctrine. It has penetrating power to corrupt everything that it's part of. And Jesus has already said in chapter 14 that the Pharisees are blind guides leading other blind men astray. Stay away from that. But we need to remember and not make the mistake of, of kind of jamming the Pharisees and Sadducees together. We often hear them approaching Jesus or John the Baptist together, but they were very different groups. And they made up the Sanhedrin, right, the Jewish council that ruled over various spheres of Jewish life. They were very different. You see, the Pharisees were those who added to the truth. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists, the legalists of their day. They were the ones who added to the Scripture. They went well beyond what the Bible said as to what was acceptable behavior. If, when the Scripture said, keep the Sabbath holy, they would tell you exactly how many steps you could take. And they would define it out for you. 
and come up with all their own rules. It was like building a hedge around the scriptural law so that you wouldn't even come close to breaking it. But again, those were man-made laws, man-made rules. And modern day uh, fundamentalists are there have inherited that. They say that no Christian should smoke, drink, or dance, or their salvation is at risk. Teaching, adding to the truth of the Scriptures. And the problem, when we add to the Scriptures and to the Gospel, is that we obscure the true Gospel. Piling additional rules and regulations on top of having faith in Jesus Christ alone to save makes it hard for people to find true faith. And they end up settling for a different gospel. Now the Sadducees were those who subtracted from the truth. The Sadducees were the theological liberals who didn't accept miracles, the resurrection of the dead, rejected large parts of Scripture. They were the mainline denomination of their day who have given up believing the Bible to be inerrant, inspired, and they question the main points of the Apostles' Creed and Orthodox Christianity today. Be careful who your spiritual leaders are. Don't follow those who are modern-day Pharisees who insist on everyone keeping man-made rules, the ones that they've decided on. And don't follow those who are modern-day Sadducees who deny the supernatural and the authority of Scripture itself. If you ever have to evaluate a church, leave this church or those who are visiting or live other places. Stick with spiritual leaders who believe the Scripture to be inspired, inerrant, infallible. Those who teach and believe the gospel of grace. If they can't sing in Christ alone, my hope is found. Run for the exit. And if they bind you to all kinds of extra biblical rules, resist that as well. A man left the church that I worked at one time, and I got, but I got to meet with him after he and his family had left. And he was telling me some of the churches he was looking at. And I gave him a few churches that I thought would be good fits for his family. And I, I don't like to bash other churches for sure, but I told him, please don't go to this church because they don't believe that Jesus is the only way. And then I said, and please don't go to this church because you will forget that Jesus is the way to be saved because they will work you so hard and pile on guilt when you don't perform up to their standards. I hope he listened to me. And that's my advice when you commit to a church, when you're looking for a church, but what does that, does that mean I can never read a book or listen to a sermon unless it's an author in my denomination, on my pastor's approved list? Well, what, what would Sean Groves and Lifeway Christian Store say? Go ahead and read it. Go ahead and listen Use discernment.
Finally, verses 7 through 12. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These verses are a great reminder that unbelievers aren't the only ones who don't recognize or remember what God has done. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples, those who believe in him, and they forgot. And we forget. Actually, the disciples forgetting the bread and, and not understanding what Jesus is talking about is actually pretty comical as you read through it. I mean, Jesus comes up with this brilliant metaphor. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And, and the disciples are looking around at each other going, well, I knew we should have stopped and picked up some bread. Who was in charge of that? One of the sons of thunder, probably. These guys can't remember anything. And again, you just see Jesus shaking his head. You're not getting it. So he has to explain it. And I see a, a contrast here. And there's a big difference between being evil and adulterous, which is what Jesus called the generation. And I think he really targeted the, the religious leaders in verse 4. The difference between being evil and adulterous and being, oh ye, of little faith, right? Which is what he says of the disciples in verse 8. And can you imagine the Pharisees recoiling when Jesus calls them that? I mean, evil is bad enough, but adulterous? There's, there's not really evidence, I don't think, that the religious leaders had moral failings in their marriages. If anyone was adulterous, it was the Roman aristocrats. Remember, they took great pride in their morals. But perhaps Jesus is not speaking of physical adultery. Remember, Israel had a long history of spiritual adultery. The, the prophets were constantly rebuking them of wandering from being faithful to God to worshiping idols. So they had cleaned that up really pretty well by Jesus' day. But while you don't see the idol worship with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Jesus still uses that word, adulterous, because they were still rejecting God's truth or a different truth. But when Jesus says to the disciples, oh, you of little faith, I don't think he means that the disciples are totally lacking faith, Right? Little faith, I think, is more of a distracted faith. I mean, it has an immature faith, but it, it's thinking about the things around it, right? As they took everything very literally and misunderstood. But strong faith is perceptive. 
searching the deeper meanings of things. I would even go so far as to say strong faith is a very discerning faith that rightly divides truth and error and understands the words of Jesus. I don't know if you do much with New Year's resolutions, but maybe put it on the list. You have a plan for 2014 that will enable you to spend more time reflecting on the deeper meaning of God's Word without distraction. Finally, I skipped over a key part of this passage because I wanted to save it till the end. Uh, we just kind of gleamed right over verse 4. And Jesus didn't totally deny them a sign, did he? He just said that no sign will be given to it, the generation or you, except the sign of Jonah. Now, do we remember this, what's the sign of Jonah? You remember his story that God called him to go to preach to the Ninevites, but he resisted because he believed they were Israel's enemies. He didn't like them. So he, he gets on a boat going the other way. God sends a storm. He gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by the big fish, spit out on land, and then he resumes his mission, preaches, and the Ninevites repent. So the sign of Jonah is it that if we get in God's will, that we'll be successful? Not quite. Maybe that if we repent, God will give us a second chance? I don't think that's exactly it. The sign of Jonah is that he was in a dark tomb for three days before being released. It's what we should call foreshadowing or typology in the scriptures. It tells us a little bit about what's coming since Jonah is in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ. In fact, Jesus has already explained it once in Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So ultimately, Jesus is saying that I've got a really great sign that everyone is going to see later. After I'm put to death, I'll spend a couple days in a dark tomb, but then I'll be released. I'm going to come back to life, and then you'll have your sign from heaven. The sign that says, I am who I say I am. And those who accept my death and resurrection will understand the new covenant. And those who don't will not understand. And most of you, Pharisees, Sadducees, unbelieving generation, will not believe. And beloved, that sign is still in front of us. Jesus performed a lot of miracles during his life, but his biggest one was defeating death and Satan and rising from the dead. What does the resurrection declare? That God has accepted Christ's death on our behalf so that in Christ, our sins have been paid, God's justice has been satisfied, 
And there is nothing more to add. And that death is swallowed up in victory so that the sting of death is removed. The grave could not hold him. Death could not conquer him because he is the perfect one, God himself. And those who believe in him are raised with him. Our sins are taken in on him in his death and we are raised to new life with him. And I implore those of you who have never believed in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, discern and believe the truth. Because that is the key to eternal life. Accept the bread of life and not the bread of false religion. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for another year of this church body meeting together, worshiping, fellowshipping, sharing, working together. Thank you for those that you've brought new. Thank you for those who have moved on. Thank you for the ways that you are stretching us growing us, the ways that you are challenging us. Thank you for your word that we preach week in and week out. And for the book of Matthew, thank you for its constant reminder that Jesus is truth and the gospel of grace in his perfect life, sacrificial death, and his resurrection is the true gospel. And if we add to obscure that, Lord, teach us to be discerning and, and resist that. Or if we subtract from that, may people rise up from the pews and reject it. Help us to be a church that loves your word and loves to grow in grace and truth. Help us to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who went and checked the scriptures for themselves because they were discerning, because they wanted to make sure their leaders, their speakers, their pastors, their teachers told them the truth and that that truth was in accord with Scripture. Help us to read the Bible the way you want us to read it, with hearts of faith, believing. Thank you for this. At close of this year, Lord, bless us in the new year. In Jesus' name, amen.